traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Can your bold vision be transformed into long-term value? EY is a giant of the professional services world. With its vast range of services, it promises big things to its clients. Realize your transformation with EY. Less appealing are the scandals that have rocked the firm in recent years. Former CEO of Wirecard has been arrested on suspicion of falsifying accounts. EY found itself in hot water after the collapse of the German fintech Wirecard in 2020. It turned out Wirecard had a $2 billion hole in its balance sheet, which EY, its auditor, had failed to spot. Wirecard's auditor EY is also facing scrutiny for failing to check Wirecard's bank statements for three years. That very same year, it emerged that another client, NMC Health, had $4 billion of hidden debt forcing the company into administration. In 2021, hot on the heels of those two audit blunders, EY announced a plan to separate its audit and consulting businesses. The plan was intended to free EY from conflicts of interest between its audit and advisory arms and raise money for big new investments. As recently as January, the firm's global chief executive said all was going well. We're on our way. We think this makes strategic sense for EY going forward. It really allows both companies to grow and to grow more than what they're growing today. But last week, after weeks of infighting over the specifics of the deal, the plan was dropped. Today, Scrap plans to split its audit and consulting firms after leaders of its US arm decided not to go ahead. EY and its peers, Deloitte, KPMG and PwC, together known as the Big Four, form one of business's most powerful oligopolies, offering services of one form or another to nearly every large company in the world. They look set to continue with the marriage of audit and advisory that has underpinned their growth over the past two decades. But is a divorce inevitable? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, are the big four too big for their own good? First, we'll hear how the four firms have expanded into nearly every corner of the professional services market. Then we'll explore what has made the combination of audit and advisory work so well over recent years. The advisory business has a huge amount to offer the audit side. So they potentially can bring in great, innovative, new sources of expertise, which are hugely valuable. And finally, we'll look at the forces pulling the two businesses apart. So on paper, 
if you were looking at this and saying, well, should these businesses be under the same roof? The answer would be no. Mike, Alice, hello. Hey, Tom. Tom, hello. What's been keeping you both busy this week? I've been taking a look at Warren Buffett's investments and bond issuance in Japan, which is a huge deal for people like myself, slightly obsessed with the intricacies of Japanese financial markets. He has made an absolute killing, basically, so far by purchasing shares in some fairly stodgy usually thought of as pretty boring Japanese conglomerates. And it looks like he's going to benefit even more from the very low interest rates in Japan, which is why he's borrowing in yen. Warren Buffett is one of those financial stories that can touch basically any asset you're interested in. I think he also has been sounding off about his American bank investments recently, which is what I've been thinking about this week. America's big banks start reporting their earnings on April 14th. And the banks always go first when it comes to earnings season. And usually they're just sort of quite a crunchy or bland appetizer for all of the much more exciting businesses like tech or manufacturing, which report sort of later in the season. But this time they're sort of more akin to the main course. After uh, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, everyone was sort of on tenderhooks waiting to see how much damage that period has done to the banking system. The short answer is that things look okay at the moment, at least. So Tom, as our resident former consultant, I imagine you've been closely following all of the chaos at EY. Could you fill us in? Yes, I have to say consultants are rarely the subject of positive news coverage. And the past week has been sadly no different. So the big story is that EY, which is one of the world's biggest professional services firms, has for a couple of years now been working on a deal to divide the company into two, an audit firm and an advisory firm. In the past couple of months, some hitches have emerged around that, particularly around which side of the business the company's tax experts would move to, which proved a big sticking point for the firm's American branch in particular. Now, despite all of that, the message from the firm over recent weeks has been that the deal was still in hand and that all the internal parties were kind of working through these issues. So there was quite a bit of surprise, actually, when on Tuesday of last week, the firm turned around and announced that actually they couldn't find a way through the impasse and were putting the idea of a separation on an indefinite pause. So I think I've read that this costs something in the region of $600 million, the sort of planning around the prospect of breaking up the business. So obviously, that's a huge sunk cost on their part. But Aside from being awkward for EY, why does it matter? What does it tell us about audit and these businesses? Yeah, so EY and the remaining three members of the so-called Big Four, so Deloitte, KPMG, and PwC, they're really the heavyweight champions of the global professional services industry. So between them, they employ about 1.4 million people around the world and generate around $190 billion of combined revenue. And just to put that into context, the trio of premium strategy consulting firms that we've talked about on the show before, actually, so McKinsey, the Boston Consulting Group, and Bain, have a combined revenue of somewhere in the order of $30 billion. So the big four really are very big. And what differentiates them from really any other business in the professional services world is the breadth of what they do. They dominate the audit market. So they audit 493 of the firms in the S&P 500, for example. 
But they also advise companies on anything ranging from optimizing their taxes to buying and selling businesses to deploying new technologies and everything in between. So the big four operate as a kind of one-stop shop for professional services. Has it always been like that? There's an interesting backstory to this, actually. So in the early 2000s, three of the four, EY, KPMG and PwC, actually spun off their advisory businesses at the time after new conflict of interest rules meant that they couldn't sell advisory services to audit clients any longer. So they pulled back to just focus on audits, which was their original core business. EY sold its advisory operations to Capgemini, PwC sold its to IBM, and KPMG listed its advisory on the stock market. Deloitte also planned to do a spin-off of its advisory business, but scratched the plan in the end. And what's interesting is that since those splits, the three that did break up have steadily rebuilt their advisory arms, which are now much bigger than they ever were before the separations. So speaking of auditing, it's not an industry that's usually perceived as the most sort of scintillating, but it has generated quite a bit of surprisingly juicy news in the past few years, hasn't it? Exactly right. So just a couple of weeks ago, EY found itself barred by Germany's accounting regulator from taking on new audit clients in the country over failings in its auditing of Wirecard, which is a fintech that collapsed in 2020. EY, in its statement on the matter, said that it regrets that the fraud at Wirecard was not discovered sooner, that they've learned important lessons from the matter, and that EY Germany is a different business today, having taken significant action to strengthen its audit quality and risk management. And EY is not the only one getting caught up in these snafus. So last year, KPMG was fined £14 million, so about $18 million, by the FRC, which is Britain's audit watchdog, for misleading it as it investigated two of the firm's audits. And the list goes on from there. So it hasn't exactly been a flattering few years for the firm's audit arms. And how does that tie into EY's proposed spin-off? Well, on the surface, the issues are separate. So EY pitched this deal as being primarily about liberating its business from these conflict of interest regulations, which meant that the win of a a big client for its audit arm effectively was a loss for the advisory arm. But I think it's fair to say that when you look beneath the surface, all these scandals actually hint at deeper troubles in what the firms call the multidisciplinary or multi-line model. To find out more about that, I spoke to Laura Empson. She served as an independent non-exec on the board of KPMG UK and is now a professor of the management of professional service firms at Bayes Business School. Laura, great to have you on Money Talks. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. So the big four went through a phase of shedding their advisory businesses back in the early 2000s, but have since regrown them. Why is a sole focus on auditing seemingly so unsatisfying for these firms? Well, in simple terms, it's just not particularly profitable, or rather the profits they earn are large, but the profit margins are relatively small. I mean, what we're talking about is a very mature market. It's an oligopoly. There's not much opportunity for them to expand their audit businesses. They're hugely labour intensive, so they have a substantial cost base that they need to cover. And the margins are tiny because the audit fees that the clients want to pay and are prepared to pay 
are relatively small. As uh, advisory has grown as a share of these businesses, what impact has that had on the auditing side of things? It's complicated. I mean, on the one hand, the advisory business has a huge amount to offer the audit side. So they potentially can bring in great, innovative, new sources of expertise, which are hugely valuable when you're dealing with extremely complex audits and extremely complex client situations. It's great to be able to reach out to people with specialist expertise. And, you know, in areas, particularly in the tech sector, where the clients will always be constantly, constantly innovating in terms of what they're doing, you can't really expect the auditors to be absolutely at the cutting edge of what their tech clients are doing from an innovative perspective. But the consultants, if they're a specialist sort of within the wider advisory business, there'll be someone you can call who can explain stuff to you. So there is an opportunity for knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer. The question has always been, the challenge from the regulator's point of view is, when does knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer start to look like crossing Chinese walls? And it's always been a delicate balance for these firms to try and strike. On the one hand, they sell to their clients the idea that, look, we've got this vast array of expertise. But at the same time, the regulators kind of impose quite strict restrictions on how they can draw on that information. So the second major advantage for having a consulting practice on board is you can sound a lot more interesting in your recruitment presentations. These firms have to hire vast numbers of graduate recruits to go straight into their business because audit is incredibly people hungry at the bottom level. But young graduates are not necessarily hugely excited about dedicating you know, the next 10 years of their life to becoming an audit partner. But if the recruiters can sell this story of vast opportunities with you know firms all around the world doing a vast way of important as well as interesting things, then the graduate recruits will say, yes, you know, sign me up for that. So those are two good reasons to have an advisory practice. That all sounds very positive. Do you see any drawbacks? The drawback is the advisory practices have grown and have been so successful, they start to dominate the power dynamics within the firms. Power always accrues where the money is generated. And if the consulting business is growing and generating large profits, then the consulting partners will be looking to have a bigger share of the say in the running of the firm and a bigger influence on how decisions get made. And that bearing in mind that the consultants are not generally coming from regulated areas of the sector. And that potentially there can be a culture clash if they don't understand why all these restrictions are imposed upon them and why all these really cool and exciting opportunities to make money are denied them by the regulator. And that's when the consultants start saying, well, remind us again, why do we work with you? You know, what is the point of you in our lives? Well, one of the reasons is the point is the brand. I mean, the brand of the big four begins with its audit. It is built on the credibility that comes from the audit practice and the audit work and the trust that clients and shareholders and regulators place in them. So the brand of the auditors has proven to be a real asset in building these large advisory practices. But I think it's fair to say in the last few years that some of those audit brands have, you know, have not exactly covered themselves in glory. There's been a number of pretty high profile scandals. To what extent do you think the asset of 
audit's reputation is potentially becoming a liability for the advisors? And to what extent do you think that might be making them think twice about the value of this composite multi-line model? That's going to be a part of it. And I think it's fair to say that the auditors, in a sense, have been able to kind of take the moral high ground for a while because they have the credibility and the status and the prestige that comes from this relatively distinguished and long-standing profession. And then they blow it by doing something really stupid and ends up costing the firm massive amounts of money in terms of regulatory fines. So when that happens the consultants will start asking questions. How valuable is this brand to us? Bearing in mind that there are substantial costs associated with being part of these global auditing big four practices, primarily from all the opportunities foregone, all the clients that you're precluded from working with because the audit practice has has won a big audit. So a huge and exciting win for the audit practice automatically translates into a denial of opportunity for business for the consulting practice. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you so much, Tom. So, Alice and Mike, what do you make of this somewhat uneasy relationship between the slow and steady, highly regulated world of auditing and the more freewheeling consulting business? Yeah, I love these really thorny conflict of interest issues, in part because they're pretty familiar from my first five or six years in the working world. There are lots of scenarios in which having two businesses that need to be arm's length from one another because they have sort of different compliance requirements, it can still make sense to have those businesses under one roof. So in an investment bank, there's a sort of rock solid Chinese wall between their advisory business or their issuance business who knew lots of material, non-public things, and the trading business where they work exclusively in public markets. When I worked on the trading floor, we had no idea who any of this IBD folks were, which floors they worked on. And the Chinese wall was so solid that often traders would be chatting about leaving work to pick up their kids after the market closed or what they were going to make for dinner or whatever. And they would get a call from the issuance desk saying, we're going to issue a load of shares for this company. You need to sell them. And it would come at 5pm and they just have to drop everything and get on the phone to hedge funds. And in that scenario, Yes, those businesses have to be kept at arm's length, but there is a benefit to clients and the bank from having both arms capable of functioning in that sort of separate way. But I'm sympathetic to what Laura was saying about how it creates sort of risk and internal tension as well. What she was saying about the stodgier bits of the business getting sidelined when there's a conflict with the real money-making centres is also very familiar to me. I was an economist covering the Philippines and for months I was not supposed to write anything about the Philippines because the bank was doing a bond issue for the government. So, you know, as she said, the power really does follow the money and the bond people made more money than I did. Yeah, I love this sort of topic too. I did my undergraduate degree in history and we did a lot of economic history and the sort of practice of audit is almost as old as the practice of accountancy itself. And you've always had these conflicts of interest for centuries. You had in the Middle Ages, these mercantile guilds that would audit public accounts. And there's always been a push towards getting independent audit of companies. Obviously, for a very long time, you sort of had to rely on the company auditing itself, and it created these principal agent problems. That's where there's a conflict between, say, 
the management of a company that might be inclined to take a lot more risk because it's not their money and the shareholders of a company who are more conservative, uh, these things can crop up in all sorts of ways. Another example is the credit rating agencies in the run-up to the financial crisis. You had institutions structuring these, as they turned out, very dangerous mortgage bonds, these complex securities, and credit rating agencies giving them a AAA rating all the same. And it was a complex situation, but the bottom line is that the credit rating agencies were prone to exactly these sort of conflicts of interest that we're talking about here. And from one business model in a bit of trouble to another, I'm very excited to read this week the special report that's going to be in the paper about the car industry and its sometimes difficult pivot towards electric vehicles. Yes, that report looked great to me as well. I'm also really excited to sit down with our bonanza of AI coverage in this week's paper. So looking at everything from whether it's going to steal everyone's jobs to whether it poses an existential risk to humanity, which hopefully not, but apparently not a risk we can completely rule out. Listeners can find out whether an AI-induced apocalypse is in fact coming for free by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer. You can get yourself a free 30-day digital subscription. Let's hope we live that long. That's, of course, if you're not a subscriber already. Well, uh, what better way to spend 10, 15 minutes of those final 30 days on Earth listening to the second half of this episode, where we'll be talking about how the changing nature of the consulting industry is adding greater pressure on the business model of the big four. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Before the break, we heard why the big four have enthusiastically rebuilt their consulting businesses over the past two decades, and some of the troubles that have begun to brew in the combined business model. Over the years, the nature of the consultancy work that the big four do has also changed in important ways. To find out more about that, I spoke to Tom Rodenhauser, the managing director of Kennedy Research Reports, which studies the consulting industry. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Happy to be here. Tom, could you start by giving us a sense of just how big the big four are when it comes to advisory work? So the big four are basically the four of the five largest firms in the industry. In fact, Accenture is number one, but then you have Deloitte, PwC, EY, and KPMG in that order, kind of rounding out the top five. And collectively, they're at a little over $90 billion in annual revenue in advisory. So they're pretty big. Consulting has historically been thought of as a people business, but that's increasingly no longer the case as software and data become 
increasingly important. How is that trend impacting the big four? You know, we talk about the industry changing and becoming more productized or product-oriented. And one of the things that the big four have faced, and it's most pronounced, is the people. Ultimately, there's a lack of people against the number of projects that you need to sustain that traditional consulting business, you know, project-based business. And that's led the firms to push more and more towards this product type offerings. In fact, if you look in current ads, you'll see PwC, for example, advertising its products, not its people. What that means is a lot of things are tech-oriented now. There's big talk about digitalization. There's a lot about data and analytics. All of those point to essentially product or software type solutions. So the traditional view of consulting has been the consultants come in, they solve a problem, they go away. Now they're literally staying on site or staying partnering with the client and taking over critical business functions, things around risk or things around data and analytics that the client themselves have jobbed out to the consulting firms. And as the firms become more focused on products and increasingly operating in this managed services space, how is that impacting the economics of the businesses? One of the issues you see is certainly the big four, but the majority of consulting firms are partnerships or privately owned. So the capital that they're using is really the partner's capital. And that puts them at a disadvantage when it comes to making acquisitions. Just by comparison, Accenture, since about 2017, they've made about 170 acquisitions, large and small. By comparison, Deloitte in that same time period has done about 68. So Accenture, as a publicly owned or a publicly traded company, has access to capital that's far different from the big four, which are private partnerships, essentially. So you can see just the scale in terms of the ability to buy assets, to buy capabilities. It definitely is more difficult for the big four in terms of how they approach that. Okay, so the consulting firms are investing heavily. Businesses like Accenture that are publicly listed have access to far more capital to do that. What do the consultants at the big four gain, if anything, from remaining joined to the auditors? When you look back kind of decades ago, the idea of having audit and advisory and tax, for that matter, under one roof made sense because... Uh, the advisory, the consulting side of it was very small, almost inconsequential. Now it's grown and it's become the driver for those businesses. But when you think about the paths that the audit business and the advisory business have taken, they're really divergent. They're almost completely opposite in terms of what they do, how they do it, who they serve. And, you know, it's very obvious that you can't serve an audit client with consulting services. So there's a natural barrier between the two businesses. So on paper, if you were looking at this and saying, well, should these businesses be under the same roof? The answer would be no, because they really have no synergy to use a consulting word, even though there's a claim amongst the big four that there's that kind of 
collaboration and cooperation. The reality is the businesses are different. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. So for the moment, EY and its peers may understandably be reluctant to risk the trauma of an unsuccessful breakup attempt, but I'd argue that the underlying forces that are pushing these businesses apart, the dissynergies, if you will, are only going to get stronger. And it was telling for me that in its communications around this, EY clearly left open the possibility of revisiting some form of separation down the line. But Alice, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I do understand the need to keep certain elements of these kinds of businesses separate. And I think that both you and our guest, Tom, this week have made a pretty compelling case for that meaning that you should just split these businesses up. It does strike me that one possible benefit of keeping them together is that consulting is this sort of very pro-cyclical industry, right? So management is very happy to fork over for advice during the boom times, but it might cut back on that in leaner times. But audit is as steady as they come. You know, you can't skip a year of regulatory filings to boost your margins. Now, perhaps that reason alone is not enough. It would suggest you should also merge Campbell's soup with Tesla, for instance. But it is one argument for keeping things together. I think I actually agree with Alice completely on the sort of mechanics there. But that seems to me it's a good reason for the advisory side of the business to keep the audit side. It's less obvious to me that the advisory side is such a benefit to audit. I can see why Tesla benefits from being able to rely on the steady, reliable income stream of Campbell's soup, but I don't want Elon Musk actually making anything that I have to eat. So I I think there's an argument for maybe auditors aren't actually properly remunerated, and that's the issue we're facing here. Ultimately, it's not really the company getting audited that benefits from having an audit, and they are the ones that are paying. In fact, if anything, they're the ones that benefit least because they can't employ their most sort of creative and positive accounting. Society benefits, every investor that might invest in this business or anything adjacent to it benefits from that audit. They're the ones free riding in a weird way on this. But ultimately, yeah, I think I share Tom's sensibilities. I'm a little bit queasy about these businesses being tied together in this way. Sadly, that's all we have time for on the show today. But before we go, it's time for our stats of the week. So Alice, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. My stat of the week this week is 50%, which is the share of young people aged 25 to 34 that are investing in ETFs or exchange-traded funds in Taiwan. So apparently Taiwan is packed with very sensible young investors who are, rather than sticking their cash in crypto or meme stocks, are piling it all into uh, steady ETF funds to invest for the long term. So uh, I want to give a shout out to the sensible uh, young people in Taiwan who had adopted this strategy. So my stat of the week is $100 million. I will concede that this number was apparently reported towards the end of last year. I missed it at the time, but it's reportedly the amount of money that was offered to Taylor Swift to do some celebrity endorsement for FTX, the now collapsed crypto company. That fact coming back into the news because there's a class action lawsuit against some of FTX's celebrity endorsers. And one of the lawyers pursuing that suit says that Taylor Swift was one of the very few celebrities that had some qualms and noted that these were 
unregulated and unregistered securities. So well done, Tay-Tay. <laughs> well done, Tay-Tay, is probably what her lawyers are saying to her. Maybe if more uh, American celebrities had turned down these massive payments for promoting crypto, we'd have a, a generation of sensible ETF investors in America as well, just like the Taiwanese. Yes, well, I hear the financial influencer business is, is booming. So if things all go belly up in Taylor Swift's other creative endeavors, it seems to be a, a good adjacent business opportunity there for her. So my stat of the week is 1.43 billion, which is the population of India now, which has just surpassed China's, according to the United Nations. And unlike China, whose population actually began to decline last year, India's population is forecast by the UN to continue growing in the decades ahead, hitting nearly 1.7 billion in 2050. Even more people to buy up Taylor Swift tickets and uh, hopefully ETFs as well. And with that, I want to thank Laura Empson and Tom Rodenhauser. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth and Lawrence Knight. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.